Well, go ahead and take your seats. Thank you for joining us. Thank you if you're at home watching. It's just a great day to be together. I'm Pastor Duane, and I want to say uh, to all our guests, if you're watching us online for the first time or if you're in the room for the first time with us, it's great that you're here, and we're excited to have church together. I want to start by uh, having you think about our digital world, because uh, in our digital world, the AI, the artificial intelligence in our computers, they want to get to know you. They'd like to fully know you, if they could. They want to recognize you. You know, you pick up your phone, and, and if you've got one of those phones, it wants to recognize your face, and it's having all sorts of trouble with your masks, isn't it? Right? It wants to recognize your voice. Hey, Siri. Yes, Dwayne. Right? Um, it wants to recognize your fingerprints. It will know your buying habits. It will predict your desires. It will understand your mood so it can pop up the right emoji for you. It can identify your friends and your family. If you have one attached to your home, it can know the right temperature for you to make you feel cozy. You know, whether you like to be at home with a big sweater and some socks on, whether your temperature is 19 or 22 or 26, if you're an older person, you just like it really warm. I was telling the first congregation that my dad is one of those people that keeps turning the temperature up. He does come from Trinidad, so maybe that's part of it. Uh, these computers who want to know you, they'll know what you like to read so they can recommend your next book. Or they, they know what you want to read in the news so they can give you the next article. They, they know if you prefer to watch movies in your spare time or to watch sports or if you're one of those people that likes to watch chick flicks and uh, Hallmark movies. You know, they, they know if you're one of those people that likes to listen to true crime stories in your podcast or if you prefer following the stock market. The computers are singing a song. Who are you? Who, who? I really want to know, right? You know that song from CSI? They're trying to get to know you, and a lot of us are providing the answers. You add to your digital identity in hopes that Siri and Cortana, that's the Microsoft one, and Alexa, they can grow up to be versions of Rosie, the Jetsons robot maid. Who remembers the Jetsons cartoon? Yeah, she was the original PDA, right? Um... Being known by our robots makes life cooler, but even with this near-infinite amount of data that's being collected about us, the bots will never know you fully. They'll never understand your soul. They won't even understand that you have a soul. They won't care. They won't love. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to misjudge you. And if the movies are right, and the movies are always right, they're going to replace you with some robot version of yourself. The sci-fi movies play up on a real social fear that we have, and it's this— if I let you know me completely, you're going to want someone better than me, somebody that's less flawed. That's the doomsday thing in every movie where the robots take over, right? We'll get rid of all the humans and just leave all the robots because you guys have problems. Me too. Your digital file, your consumer data, this, this growing world of information, information about you comes without real understanding of who you are. And we can have that same experience in our relationships. There's lots of info, but such little understanding. And I think what we really want, what we really need is to, to know we're understood and to understand that we are accepted. If we had understanding like that, we could solve the problems related to prejudice and confusion and fear right now. 
But as long as people have a flawed understanding of each other, these problems will continue. We resist being fully known because it's too risky. People will jump to the wrong conclusions about us, or they're going to exploit us with the information we would share. We don't want that to happen, so we build our walls, and we resist being fully known. But we shouldn't do that with God. God is the only being in the universe that can give us the understanding that we crave. He fully knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows you better than your mom knows you. He knows you better than your dad knows you, better than your lawyer, better than your best friend, better than your counselor, your pastor, or if you come from another tradition, a priest, the one you confess to. He knows you even better than that person that you got all silly with and you spilled your guts to them. He knows you that well. No human is capable of doing what God can do. He is the one that searches you. And everything about you is clear to him. You see, God gets you. He loves you. And he wants you to feel accepted in his presence. And that's why he sent Jesus, so that we could stand before him, not as sinners who just have to announce all our sin, but as people who are forgiven, loved, and to be his children Accepted in his presence. With God, there's no secret about you that would stop him from offering you his love. And he wants you to feel approved in his presence. And this is exactly how David feels as he writes the words of Psalm 139, the, word, the words we're going to look at today. There's no uh, specific situation tied to this psalm. It's just stuff that David has kind of understood about the Lord and the things that make his relationship with God remarkable. He's blown away by how much God knows about him. And here's my question to get us started. Have you contemplated, have you considered how much God knows about you? Have you thought about that? I know you come to a sermon and you think, okay, that guy's going to talk and I'll just kind of mildly listen to what he's saying, but I want you to stop and really think about it. How much does God know? know about you. He knows how you came here today, whether you came in an SUV or a little car or on a motorbike or if you walked up or took the bus. He knows how you're going to go out, which door you're going to take. He knows where you're sitting right now. But most importantly, he knows why you're here. Maybe you don't even know that yourself. But he knows you and all about you. He knows why you're here. So let's take a look at this passage, the first 16 verses, and see how God knows all of this about us. Let's read it now. Verse 1, Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it completely. You know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I can't attain it. I can't get up to that. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, 
you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. He's literally talking about the kidneys, the idea that David can't see inside himself. And he's like, wow, God, you made this stuff inside. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So these opening verses show us how being fully known by God can fuel our worship. We sang songs that reminded us of this just now, that got us singing. And I, I, I find as I meditate on those songs, as I think about those choruses, as I understand how much God knows about me, it makes me excited to worship the Lord. It makes me want to be dedicated to worship the Lord. And I hope it has that same effect on you this morning as we study this together. So let's start with these first six verses and declare this statement over them. I'm a fully known worshiper when I am guided by God's intimate care. As we begin, David makes this bold declaration right off the top that we can immediately apply to all of our lives. He says, O Lord you have searched me, and you've known me. And every idea that follows plays off the fact that you, like David, are an open book before the Lord. It's impossible. It's impossible for you to hide part of yourself from him. He looked into you completely before you came to this room. He did his research. And he's got you all figured out. His file on you is complete. And it covers you from every angle. If he had a selfie album for you, 360 coverage. He's got you. God has always had you under intimate study. And listen, you are one of his favorite subjects. He's got an A-plus in you. He's got an A-plus in Hooper. Right? He knows you that well. So let's jump into David's shoes and see that God knows when you sit down and when you rise up. He knows your thoughts from afar. He knows your path, the way you go through your day, and he knows when you end your day and lie down for sleep. He's acquainted with all your ways, the scripture says. God knew David as a young boy. He knew him as a young man. He understood what he was going to be like as a king and, and what would happen to him with Bathsheba and all that kind of stuff. God saw it all, and he watched it happened before it happened. He watched it happen as it went through. God saw it all. But what does that mean for us? It means that God has been watching you, studying you. He understands you with this intimate care. He saw you when you're being raised as a child. He's seen you go through your education. He knows what kind of student you are. He knows if you are a, a C or a D or an A or a B or, you know, like a Ferris Bueller type person. You know, he knows whether you like to go to school or you didn't like to school, go to school. He saw the way you were raised. He knows what you do for work. He knows how you make an income. He knows whether you're satisfied with your income, what you're dreaming of next to, for your business plans. God knows your uptime and your downtime. 
Every episode of David's life and every episode of your life, God knows it. It says he's acquainted with all of your ways. So what does that mean? It means that God fully knows how you're going to spend the rest of this day, this Sunday, the first day of summer. He knows what Monday morning is going to be like for you, whether it's going to be a bear or whether, even though it's a bear, you're just going to get up and get at it. You may think that he only wants to guide you closely when you're doing church stuff, but you're wrong. He cares about the aspects of the day that would seem to have nothing to do with religion or worship or church. So that means he's thinking about you and looking into your coffee break. And whether you do that with honey or sugar or just take it black. He's with you in your commute. He knows about what you're thinking about as you drive down, whether you're going to be 10 minutes late or 10 minutes early. He's concerned about you when you're doing your desk work or at the assembly line or when you're talking with a client or dealing with a patient when you're cashing out a customer and they can't find that last dime, when you're doing your chores and scrolling through your phone, when you're shopping or when you're scrolling through your phone, when you're exercising and you're scrolling through your phone, when you're taking a nap or you're just having some time on the couch. Aren't these the things that are included in all your ways? This is what we do. We're just normal people. That's us when we're not here. Those are the things that we're doing, and God's with you in all that. He sees you. He's concerned about that. Whatever you're doing through your day, God cares about it, and he wants to guide you through it. So don't lock him out of your daily routines. Instead, invite him in. Do life with him in every moment of your day, because he knows your way, and the scripture also tells us that he knows our words even before a word is on our tongue. God knows and cares what you're thinking about. And that's maybe one of the hardest things for us to wrap our minds around because our words express our thoughts. And, you know, you have the ability to withhold your words from someone if you don't want them to know what you're really thinking. And that can be a a wise thing or that can be a form of control. But with God, you can't control him that way because he reads your ideas and emotions. He can read your mind. Which is good because we are mental We are complex mental creatures, aren't we? Listen to this. By one estimate, we may have between 24 and 60,000 thoughts a day. I don't know exactly how they tested that. It seems to be that they got you to repeat like a a statement and then said, how many times could you do that in a minute? And then multiply that. And they come up with these numbers. It seems like a lot of thoughts. It seems like a busy mind. Unfortunately, they would tell us that a lot of the thoughts we have in a day are negative and they're on repeat. So not a lot of originality. It could be the same way that you get nervous about something, saying this is never going to work. Oh, this is never going to work. This is never going to work. This is never going to work, right? But you could fill it up with, God, you know me. You love me. I'm fully known. But we have all those thoughts. Lots going on in that beehive up there, and thankfully, we don't say everything we think, right? Amen. Keeps us out of trouble. So we've got busy minds, But we have a complicated emotional makeup, too. We're a little bit, you know, touchy. We we have emotional ideas that are going on for us. Uh, We have about six to eight emotional colors that we play with. You're going to see these on a slide just now. Things like anger and surprise, anticipation, joy, 
sadness, acceptance, disgust, and fear. And they mix into, at the biggest number, 34,000 shades and hues of mood. This is an emotional wheel, wheel that you can see online and kind of, kind of pick words for how you might be feeling. I was saying that sometimes I'll, I'll be talking with my wife and trying to understand what she's thinking. I'll say, is, is this how you're feeling? She goes, no. Is this how you're feeling then? No. And I said, well, how are you feeling now? She says, well, I'm feeling a little bit angry and irritated that you keep asking me these questions. <laughs> right? There's, there's this thing about sometimes we don't really know how we feel, but God understands how we feel. He can get this mess, but we have to say that we are moody people. We can get in our, in our moods. We can feel like dancing. We can feel hungry. We can feel afraid. We can, we can feel um, tension. We can get nervous. We have all this going on, and sometimes we don't fully understand ourselves, but God knows. He understands our moods. He understands the words even before our words on our tongue, which means he knows what we're thinking. He knows why we feel what we want to say. Each of us is deciding and remembering and imagining and feeling our ways through our lives all the time. And God knows about all of it. He's not confused by any of it. He knows what you're thinking all the time, which means he knows what you're thinking right now. And he knows why you're thinking it. And no matter what it is, he's not rejecting you because of what he knows. Instead, he's inviting you to enjoy a deeper relationship with him based on his acceptance and care for you, and that's based on Jesus Christ. And that's why David can find wonder in knowing that his God has hemmed him in behind and before and laid his hand lovingly upon him. That's what the scripture said. Verse 5. And this image has dual meaning for us. To the person who resists God, maybe a person doesn't believe or, or a Christian who feels a little bit wild and wants to do their own thing, this sounds like it's a restriction. It sounds like you've been trapped by the Lord. It feels like you can't make a move without him knowing it. And that can be really uncomfortable for us at times. But don't miss the incredible comfort that this imagery provides. Let it remind you, not of a trap, but let it remind you instead of a child at the stage when they're just maybe small enough to swing off the strong bicep of a dad. Remember that stage of your life? Remember seeing that? Where... where this child can be embraced and enveloped completely in the loving arms of their father. Strong arms and reassured by the weight of that father's gentle touch, the gentle hand on their head or their shoulder. In that situation, no one can make a move against that child without that father knowing about it. And when David's saying, I've got you hemmed in behind and before, with, God's got me like that with his hand on, my, on me. I think he's talking about that situation. And it reminds us of this dad hug. A big bear hug, right? Dads, perhaps you've tried to give your kids this sense of acceptance and comfort and protection. Scooping them up. Taking them into your arms. Shielding them. Warming them. Approving them. Loving them all in this one gesture. This illustration reminded me of a time when my son, my oldest son, who's was small. He's much bigger than me now. Biggest guy in the house. But he was small once. He could fit right here. And at that stage, shortly after that stage, he was getting a bath. He escaped from my wife, got out the door and found the stairways and started to fall down the stairs, laughing the whole way, so don't worry. But I heard the noise. I didn't know what's happening. I come to the stairs and I see this naked child tumbling over. 
And I, and I heroically go into action, and I, I grabbed him, and I saved his life, right? And I picked him up, and I was like, I got you. You're okay, right? And he looks at me, yeah, I'm okay, right? And he was safe, and it was a great mood. And he, was, he didn't understand something, you know, what the risk was. He just was safe. And I think of that moment, and I, and I think about David realizing he's hemmed in behind before with God's hand on him. And he's saying to his father, he's got me. And that's what I want you to hear. All day, every day, God's got you. So if he's got me, and if he's got you, why wouldn't you want to worship him? Why aren't you trying to work within his loving guidance so that you can continue to have that experience of his approval? At the end of these first six verses, David is really humble. God's comprehension of who he is and what he needs stands like the sheer face of a mountain in front of him. It's so high, he can't get over it. He, he can't measure up to that kind of knowledge about himself. He knows he doesn't deserve it, but he loves the attention that God gives him. He loves it. He loves being guided by his God's intimate care. Let's look at the next six, six verses to continue this meditation and put these, this statement over it. I'm, fully, I'm a fully known worshiper when I'm trusting in God's loving watchfulness. So these verses begin to help us think about God in a different way. We were just meditating on the idea that God knows all about us. And this is because God is omniscient, which means he knows everything. He knows all. But God is also omnipresent. He is everywhere. That doesn't mean that he is everything. We don't believe God is everything. God, we are not pantheists. That's the idea that God is everything, that he's this microphone, that he's this, this bench, he's, he's that chair. That's not what we believe. We say God is with us, but he is not us, and we are not him. God can be everywhere because he is not a physical being. We as physical beings, we're limited to time and space, but God is not. He is a spirit, so he has no height. He didn't gain any weight during the pandemic. There's no physical substance about him. There's no matter to him. When God appears, he is represented by a physical form. Sometimes he might look like light. That's what he, you know, in the Old, in the Old Testament, comes in a cloud. He comes in a fire like the burning bush. But it's not him. He's not there only He's in that thing. It's representing him. He's not limited to the manifestation of his presence. He continues to be omnipresent. With Jesus, who is God in the flesh, he's still omnipresent because he's still God the Father and he's still God the Holy Spirit at the same time. So we can say he is here with me on this stage. I can say he's here with you where you're sitting. I can say he's with you at home. We know he's with every church that's worshiping him today. We know he's with people that aren't ready to worship him. He's in heaven, keeping things going, and he's managing the whole universe at the same time. He's omnipresent. That's the end of this theology lesson. Let's see how this affects us as worshipers. So David raises this question at the beginning of verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Where could I flee from your presence? If David wanted to get away from God, he contemplates, how would I do that? Is there a place that I can conceive of that God could not be? If I was there, maybe then he wouldn't 
He wouldn't be able to see me. He wouldn't be able to, to love me. It's not that he really wants to do this. I think David's just being a bit crafty. We have people like that where they just look for the loophole in an idea. They try to figure out, okay, how does that thing break? How does this thing come apart? So it's like if you're at the airport whenever we're allowed to do that again, and David's with you, he's going to stand in line, poke you in the ribs, and go like, hey, you know, before we get there, do you think there's any way to get around that scanner? And when you come back, he's going to be like, do you think we can get the extra, like, uh, stuff through customs without them knowing it? He's just, he doesn't really want to. He's just playing a game. He's thinking, how could we do this? It's hypothetical. What he's really making the point what the point he's really making is to say that it's impossible to get away from an omnipresent God. But he's going to consider the options. So he says to himself, well, what if I, if I wanted to get away from God, what if I could go up to heaven? What if I could go and hang out with the angels, but wait a second, that's, that's where God is. So that's not going to work. He says, well, okay, what if I go down to Sheol? What if I go to the lowest part of the world? That's the way they thought the world, high and low. You know, Sheol, what if I go down there, dig, 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 or die, 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 die. I get down to hell one way or the other. Okay? Uh, you can't dig to hell. Okay, just in case someone's confused. You know, you can't do that. But if I went there, would I, would I be able to escape God? And he says, no, because God is there too. He, that's, that's something he made. That's part of his creation. So David expresses these ancient hopes of Christianity, which are still with us today, that nothing separates us from God, not height nor depth, nor angels nor demons, nor death itself. Romans 8, 38, 39 says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So those two ideas won't work. Well, what about this one? What if we do the Jonah move? What if we get on a boat and take it to the farthest place on the ocean? And if you've been with us, you know that that idea does not work because God will find him. God is there. God knows all about it. So Jonah was thinking about what he could do to get to the edge of his existence. He thought the edge of the sea is as far as you get, but we're smarter than that. We are people, modern people, on the edge of recreational space travel. We could buy a ticket soon and go to space like tourists. So we could say this. You could take a trip on your favorite rocket ship and zoom through the sky with your little Einstein to the farthest point in known space. You could go that far to the edge, past Saturn, outside of our galaxy, the Milky Way, out to the limits of what the Hubble telescope can see, which is pretty far. You'd be at the edge of known existence. And even then, you would discover that God's been with you the entire time on the trip, and he's there waiting for you when you arrive. Because our God, who is the Lord of the earth, where we live, is also the Lord of the heavens. He's the Lord of hell. He's the Lord of the sea. He's the Lord of space, and he's the Lord of time. He goes before you, and he goes with you. And David trusted that his God, who could do all that, loved him and watched over his life all the time. Do you trust gods like that? Do you believe that is the way he can care for you? David could not dream of a place where God wouldn't lead him or support him. And if you know about David's life, he covered a lot of ground running from an enemy named Saul. So David had to live in exile. He lived in hiding. He hung out in caves. He feared for his life. And during those times, David learned that even the darkness of night, they didn't have lamps and, and electric, electrical things and flashlights and phones to keep things shining. They, didn't, you know, they just had fires, but it was dark. Even the darkness of night, God kept watch over his life as though it was in the full light of day. Darkness was no problem for God. 
But for us, we don't always feel that God is watching us that closely, right? That is a problem. That's, that's the question underlying this is, how come it doesn't always feel like this? And I can admit that there are times that we must cling to the hope of God's omnipresence more than we feel it. We can, we can lose sight of God. It's possible for Christians to lose sight of God and wonder, does, do you still see me? Do you still know what I'm going through? Are you still watching over me in a loving way? I can tell you that I felt some of this in my first year of university where I was wrestling with continuing as a believer or just throwing in the towel. I was honestly just tired of being a nice guy and being obedient. I realized at that university I was missing out on what other 19 and 20-year-olds were doing with their time. So I was praying to God. I remember walking to school and praying to God, saying this strange prayer like, Lord, I can't do this. I won't do this on my own. I, I, I don't really have a lot of friends here. Uh, and it requires faith to, to please you and to go with you. And I need, I need that in my life. And I'm, I'm going to want to go with these people here. And, and quite frankly, Lord, I'm looking forward at this point in my life to meeting that person that I might marry. And if that person that I might marry doesn't follow you, I don't think I'm going to be strong enough to lead that relationship your way. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to give up following you. I'm going to go with the faith of that person or I'm not going to have anything at all. That's how I felt. It was a serious prayer. I, I said I would stop following God because I, I would pursue a relationship in, that, in those opportunities instead. Now, if you know anything about my life, uh, I studied engineering, and in the engineering world that I was in, there wasn't that many options to meet girls, so that was okay. But, uh, but I also spent a year on the track team, and there were a few more options there. But I couldn't go away with the track team on any meets because I had been injured. God had seen to it that I had hurt my legs, and I spent the first year of my track eligibility, the only time I was on the track team, injured. And I was in rehab, and I didn't go away on the weekends. Instead, I was at home, and I got more involved in my church. They pulled me in and asked me to start working for them. And God didn't let me give up. He steered me away from temptations. He steered me into ministry. The shepherd of my soul was watching over my life. He sent people to me. He closed some doors so that I couldn't go through the wrong way and get into trouble. And he settled some convictions in me. And at the end of that year of doubting and wrestling and wondering, God, do you still got me? I met somebody. And I married her. Her name's Hannah, and her name means full of grace. And I look back and I realize I was never actually alone. I was never without him, and neither are you. Whether you're going through a time in the hospital or you're facing a legal trial, whether you're, you're someone who could be throwing off an addiction or trying to wrestle through that, whether you suffer from sleepless nights of worry and fear, whether you've got a hard decision to make, or you need a job, or you need a house, or you just need a friend, God is going to be there when you need him. He's going to be there when you're desperate for him. He's going to be there even when you never expected him to show up. He's going to bring with him mercy and grace. And at that moment when he seems like this amazing God who knows all about you and is inescapable, will you run from him? Or will you worship him? Will you trust in his loving watchfulness? We want to go further to finish this psalm off. The next verses. Remind us that we are fully known worshipers when we rejoice in God's wonderful work. And we see that God begins to work on us long before we know we even need him. David realized that God was involved in his creation. 
David would proclaim this to us, especially for us who live at this scientific world. He would say this, we are not, we are not haphazardly slapped together through the process, the chance processes of evolution. Consider how David describes God's work in his life and in your life. He uses words like, we are formed, we are knitted together, we are intricately woven the number and the details of our lives are written down, authored from God's mind. It's like God wrote a poem about you that lasts your lifetime, and he wrote in the details saying, oh, I'm going to give him some of this. I'm going to put a little leg wound there. I'm going to give him that moment where he calls out to me and, and needs me, and I show up and I say, yeah, I was always here all along. I'm going to give him mountaintop experience, and I'm going to keep doing all this. And one detail I'm going to give him, when he turns about 45, he's going to preach a sermon. He's not going to have any hair. You know, and that's going to be good. It's going to remind people that it doesn't matter what you look like. God can use you. Amen. Amen. Right? These statements are totally consistent with the idea of creation that's presented to us in Genesis 1 and 2. They tell us, this whole passage of Scripture tells us about God is omniscient and he's omnipresent and that he's also omnipotent, that he can know all, that he's everywhere, and he has the power to accomplish whatever it is he wills to do. And his will is to create unique people like me and like you who will bear his image in the world. God takes the two cells that start your life and he multiplies them into the 30 trillion cells that make you today. That's a lot of biology. Right? And it'd be just weird if there was nothing to connect them together, but you are, are written into a story that fits into God's story. And, and by doing that, he gives your life meaning. And in a world without God, where it would be survival of the fittest, all that would mean anything is that your genetic data transferred on. That your 30 trillion cells found a way to be 30 trillion cells again. There's no official story that gives your life eternal significance. You're just lucky to be here. You're a, a fragile thing. You exist on this blue rock that's just somewhere between this big exploding gas bomb and death. You're experiencing a chemical phenomenon that resulted in conscious and life and moving and we, you know, we have this life thing happening. But really, really, you ain't that special. That's a message from a different pulpit. It's not what I'm saying for real. But from that from that perspective, without God's miraculous involvement, there's no objective reason to say what David declares. He says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It's my favorite verse. If we move the, with the evolution theories of our day to adopt unbiblical ideas that deny God's intimacy in our creation, we shift ourselves outside of his story. The new moral perspectives on what it means to be male and female depend on making that shift. The new perspectives on abortion and euthanasia and the whole value of life and when it stops or when it's less valuable or when we should cash it in, that all depends on that shift. We are slowly turning away from God as the author and intimate creator of our lives. And in the shifted world, we're not allowed to rejoice that God made us. We don't get to believe that as a real thing. It's a comforting thing. It makes me feel special. But we don't get to celebrate it as a real thing. We can't celebrate a divine plan with days that are formed for me and written for me in a personal way. We're only allowed to rejoice if we find that we're able to compete and win. We're forced to spray paint 
over God's story with graffiti tags declaring ourselves as the new writers. But be warned, God controls the ending of every story. So don't move, Christians. Don't don't shift. Don't get carried away in the social tidal wave that wants to approve of everything regardless of what God has written. Instead, we get to navigate life with a clear theology and offer the world the value of being fully known by God. We get to offer that to people who, who have felt misunderstood, unimportant, unacceptable, misjudged, and without a purpose. We get to offer that to people who need meaning. And it's God who sows this thread of meaning into our lives. And what he weaves in becomes more and more apparent as we look back over time. The words of this psalm are declared over and over again. We sang them in the beginning in a a fresh way. And and they've been written down again with some new lyrics. I want to read to you some lyrics that come from a a singer named Torn Wells. Uh, I listened to him. I've recommended him before. I put the video for him on my Facebook page. But um, in this video, as he sings these songs, declares these truths, I want you to picture a young vocalist standing at an open mic in a lonely bar. He is on a stage. No, he's no band behind him, just a guitar. It's a slow song. Kind of has a little lilt to it, because that's the kind of music I like. He's worshiping. Hardly anybody's paying attention to him, but he sings these truths that, that we resonate with. He says this, the verse starts out, It's so unusual. It's frightening. You see right through the mess inside me. You call me out to pull me in. You tell me I can start again, and I don't need to keep on hiding. I'm fully known, and I'm loved by you. You won't let go, no matter what I do. It's not one or the other. It's hard truth and ridiculous grace to be known, fully known, and loved by you. I'm fully known and loved by you. This song was written by Ethan Hall, and Torn Wells and Jordan Sapp. Uh, they, it made it to number one on three Billboard music charts in the States. They monitored all these things, and it stayed a favorite for 39 weeks in 2018. You'll hear it on our local radio station, and uh, the video itself has 11 million views. Why do people tune into this? It's because it rings true today. He's talking about the same things that David knew when he wrote Psalm 139. It's the declaration of fully known worshipers everywhere from every time. We are the people that testify that God guides us with intimate care. We are the ones who trust in his loving watchfulness. And we are the ones who, despite everything they're telling us, get to rejoice in his wonderful work. We are worshipers and we are fully known. We're going to get to hear about that in just a moment after I pray. We have someone coming up for a baptism. They're going to tell their own story of being fully known and fully loved. You're going to get to hear that in just a minute. Let me pray for you. Father, I, uh, I thank you for our time together again this morning. And uh, I praise you. I praise you for this truth that each one of us in here, no matter how we're feeling today, no matter what's broken inside of us, no matter the thoughts that are, that are negative and running around, what we struggle with, even, Lord, for the person who feels stoic and, and still believes they don't really need you, God, you know them. You know all about them. And you want to offer them your loving acceptance and your guidance and this opportunity to rejoice in everything they are because you made them. 
God, I pray they'd hear the gospel invitation in that and, and yield themselves to Jesus, to decide to follow him a little bit longer, to keep going with you, to trust you as our heavenly and good Father. I praise you, Lord, because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made and that you know me, I'm fully known. And praise you that you know this church and each person listening today, that they're fully known. Help us to be your worshipers. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.